Presenting Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Focus on Truth is dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of the free grace of God and helping people understand the practical relevance of the Bible. Join now with Chuck as together we focus on the truth of God's Word. This is the seventh in our series that I've entitled, It is Finished, The Sure Foundation of Christianity. And today we're talking about a very important subject, and that is justification by faith. In addition to your notes, you should have another uh, a chart as well that's entitled The Unbreakable Chain of God's Salvation. It's based on uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. Uh, most of us know, I think, uh, verse 28, where uh, the Apostle Paul uh, wrote, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. But this uh, this chart is based on verses the next two verses, verses 29 and 30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He, the Son, might be the firstborn or the preeminent one among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Now, as tempting as it is to take our entire time and talk about this chart, I am not going to do that. The reason I provided the chart is that uh, so you can see the uh, justification in terms of its context. You'll notice that, uh, and I've, I've marked this on the uh, on the chart. Uh, there are five links of chain there, and there are no weak. Le- uh, there are no weak links in this uh, in this chain and the reason there are no weak links is because it's all God's work uh, his foreknowledge and his predestining take place in eternity and then here in time and space we are effectually called to him and we are justified we are declared righteous and then finally we will be glorified but that will take place in eternity as well you'll notice that uh, 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 the word sanctification is not uh, is not in there. The reason it's not in there is because that if if it were in there, that would be the weak link. Not that God would have a hard time sanctifying us, but the fact is is that sanctification is. Um, for all intents and purposes, somewhat of a cooperative venture that we have with with God. He works in us both to will and to do His good pleasure. But sometimes we grieve the Holy Spirit. Sometimes we disobey. And so that's the reason that uh, sanctification, I'm, I'm sure that's the reason that sanctification is not included in this chain. These five things are things that God Himself does apart 
apart from uh, from us. Now we're going to talk about specifically about justification, and justification is by faith. You say, well, we have a part there. We we have to believe. That's true. We do have to believe. But where does that faith come from? And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We discover that faith is God's gift to those whom He has foreknown and predestined and called to Himself. He gives them faith. Remember uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God not as a result of works that no one should boast. Now again, as tempting as it is to spend all of our time talking about this unbreakable chain, because uh, this <clears throat> going through this systematically should make a Presbyterian and Episcopalian both shout. Uh, it, uh, it is just absolutely wonderful to talk about. But what we want to do, and the reason I've included this uh, chart for your consideration, is just so that as we talk about justification, you can see it in the context in which God has provided it. Let's, uh, let's begin by talking about uh, uh, a couple of definitions. Now these are in your notes, and so we'll just refer to those because it's important that we have these clearly in our mind. Uh, the word justification... Uh, is uh, and the definition is here justification is that act of God notice it's not something that we do but it's an act of God that act of God by which he declares the believing sinner not guilty or acquitted on the basis of the substitutionary death of Christ Jesus uh, it's a uh, it's a forensic term it's a it's a term of the courtroom uh, in which we stand guilty before God as sinners and through faith in Christ through faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, God slams down His gavel and says, you are not guilty. And I look at my life and I say, well, wait a minute. I am guilty. So why, why is it that God could say I'm not guilty? That brings us to the second word, and that's the word imputation. Imputation is that act of God by which He attributes, reckons, and charges the actions of one person to another. And in this case that we're talking about, we're talking about God imputes the actions of the Lord Jesus, that is, His perfect life and His uh, perfect sacrifice. He imputes that. He credits that to our account. And uh, also, He takes all of our sin and He imputes that to the account of the Lord Jesus. That's the reason the Bible talks about He became sin for us. All of the sins of all of God's people were placed upon Christ as He was on the cross. He didn't die for His own sins because He didn't have any sins. But all of the sins of all of God's people were placed on Christ on the cross and then God the Father poured out His wrath on His Son, even turning away from His Son. This separation uh, <clears throat> that, that took place there on the cross as Jesus cried out, My God, My God, why have You forsaken Me? So, 
justification is a uh, it's it's not in in sanctification we are made righteous we are made holy but in justification we are declared to be righteous it is uh it is a again it's a courtroom term it simply means we are not guilty we are acquitted of our sins but it's not because we've done enough good works because there aren't enough good works that we can do. In fact, all of our good works are tainted by sin. But it is simply because God has taken all of our sins, placed it on Jesus, and then all of the righteousness of Jesus through faith in His finished work. All of that righteousness is imputed to the believing sinner. Uh, justification is just exactly the opposite of condemnation. In Romans chapter uh, 8, verse 1, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no judgment. And in Romans 8.33, Paul asked a, uh, a rhetorical question when he says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Why? And he answers his own question. It is God who justifies. It is God who declares righteous. God is the supreme, supreme court. There are no judgments that are greater than His. The uh, term imputation is uh, is really uh, used in three different ways in the uh, in the Bible. First of all, uh, and we see it there right there in Genesis chapter three, uh, Adam's sin is imputed to his posterity. Remember, when we are born, we're not born innocent; we're born uh, guilty. Um, we have original sin that uh, that's part of our spiritual. DNA because Adam was disobedient. In uh, Romans chapter 5, verse 19, it says, For as through the one man's disobedience, speaking of Adam, the many were made sinners. That is, all human beings are born with a sin nature. See, that's the, re- that's the very reason that the virgin birth was necessary. That... Uh, so that that would not be communicated, that even though Mary herself was a sinner and she needed a Savior, uh, the the Bible is clear that uh, that God is the Father of the of, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and this child within her womb, uh, the Lord Jesus was is kept uh, perfect in every way. He was he had a human nature. He got that from his mother Mary, but. Uh, he also had his divine nature, which he got from his Father, uh, uh, God Almighty, and uh, the first person of the Godhead. And there was no uh, no sin nature involved in uh, in the Lord Jesus whatsoever. That's why he could die for our sins. Uh, a second way that uh, imputation is used in the Bible has to do with the sins of God's people to Christ. Notice in Second Corinthians chapter. Chapter 5, verse 21, it says, God made Him, that is Christ, who had no sin 
to be sin for us. Now notice, not sin for everybody, but sin for us. Well, who are the us? Us are believers, Christians, and not just nominal Christians, that is, Christians in name only, but those who are truly trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. So God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in Him, that is in Christ, we, we believers, might become the righteousness of God. See, there's that imputation again that the, that, uh, that the sins, uh, our sins were through faith in Christ and His finished work. They, are, they were imputed to Christ and all of Christ's righteousness Righteousness is imputed to the uh, to the believer. There's a third way that uh, that is seen, and, and it's, I think it's uh, it's fascinating because it because it really illustrates what we're talking about so far, and uh, and that is. Uh, uh, Christ uh, righteousness to believers, and uh, and it's the second part of that Romans chapter five verse nineteen where it says, and and let's just read the first part of the verse again because it it ties the two together. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many all of us humans were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, speaking of Christ. The many, that is, those who are in Christ, those who are trusting in Him, will be made righteous. We're declared righteous, but we're also going to be made righteous. God is going to see to it that, uh, that all of that happens. If you will, turn to page 2 of your notes. Let's just skip ahead for just a minute. And I want us to just, I don't want to spend a lot of time, but I do want to look a little bit at a couple of these historic church documents that um, in which they um, talk about justification from the old Heidelberg Catechism of 1563. Question 60 says this, How are you right with God? That is, how is it that you are in right standing with God? That's what the question means. And here's the answer, the uh, the one who is uh, being catechized is to learn uh, learn this. Uh, incidentally, this is a marvelous way to teach our children biblical truth. Question, how are you right with God? Answer, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments and of never having kept any of them, and even though I am still inclined toward all evil, nevertheless, without my deserving it at all, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ as if I had never sinned nor been a sinner, as if I had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. All I need to do is accept this gift of God with a believing heart. Now, there are hindrances to accepting this gift. And one of them, uh, the main one, has to be with the fact that we are dead in trespasses and sins. How well do dead people respond to stimuli? Well, if we're talking about the physically dead, physically you can you can put a, an electric wire to the foot of a cadaver, and uh, it may move a little bit just simply because of the effect of the uh, the, the shock itself. But you're not going to hear any screams out of that cadaver. 
you're not going to hear them screaming, leave me alone or do anything or anything like that. Why? Because they're dead. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 that we were dead in trespasses and sins. And so because we were dead in trespasses and sins, we're not able to respond to the gospel. Dead people don't respond. And so that's one of the reasons for what's known as effectual calling. See, there there are two kinds of calling, and again, we refer to the to the chart here uh, that we were looking at a minute ago. The, there's one kind of calling. That's the external type of calling. It's a universal, general call. Remember what Jesus said. His marching orders, the uh, the Great Commission, is go into go where go into all the world and do what? Preach the gospel. Well, to whom? Just just to God's elect? No, we're to preach the gospel to everybody. We don't know who's God, who are God's elect. We're to preach the gospel to everybody. But there's a problem in preaching the gospel. Uh, and the problem is, is it falls on dead ears because people are dead in trespasses and sins. So you can say, come to Jesus, come to Jesus all you want to, to a spiritually dead person, and they're not going to come to Jesus unless something else happens. And that is they have to be effectually called. And the word effectual means God affects something in their life. What God does is God uses the gospel and He regenerates them. He breathes into them uh, spiritual life. And all of a sudden, because they come alive, they understand the fact we understand the fact that we are sinners. We understand the fact that Jesus is the only solution that we have to our sin. And we express God grants faith, God grants repentance, and we express that faith and repentance toward God. We express faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and His finished work. And what does God do? He declares us Righteous, He justifies us on that basis. Um, there in your chart, I, uh, that chart, I put a couple of notes there under the external uh, general call of the gospel. That's the gospel call to everybody everywhere. But the problem is one of the human condition. It's not just simple unwillingness. It's the spiritual inability to respond. Romans 8.8, 8, those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Notice it's not just will not. It's they cannot. It's a spiritual inability. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the man without the Spirit, that is the unsaved person, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit. Spirit of God. They are foolishness to him. He cannot understand. Notice, he can't. Dead people don't understand things of the Spirit. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But when God is pleased to regenerate a person, His elect, those whom He has foreknown, those whom He has predestined, and now He effectually calls them to Himself. He breathes into them the breath of life. And they become spiritually alive. 
It always works. And all of a sudden, again, their spiritual eyes and ears are open and we recognize ourselves for the dilemma that we're in because of our sin. And we cry out to God to have mercy on us. And He indeed does have mercy. And in showing us that mercy, He slams the gavel down and He says, Not guilty. Not guilty. You're acquitted of your sins. Why? Because I've taken all of your sins and I have already poured out my judgment for your sins on my blessed only begotten Son and all of His perfection, all of His righteousness, I impute to you. I account to you. Now we're going to see that uh, as we work our way through uh, through some of this. Now, some of you thought we'd never get back to uh, to the study, but uh, but we will. Uh, incidentally, let let's look at. Uh, <clears throat> we were talking about the church uh, historic church documents. Let's just look at one other, and that is uh, from the second one, the Westminster Confession of Faith of 1647, and this is from. Uh, Chapter 11 uh, on justification. Notice what the uh, they uh, they wrote. Those whom God effectually calleth, He also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them." they receiving and resting on Him and His righteousness by faith, which faith they have not of themselves. It is the gift of God. Notice, uh, one of the things that uh, that Jonah said, remember when he took that uh, really wild ride, that undersea ride, in chapter 2 of, uh, of the book that bears his name, uh, when he comes to the end of himself and God, uh, you know, he says, Okay, I'll do what I'm supposed to do. And he says, salvation is of the Lord. And at that point, the big fish came up and vomited Jonah out on the uh, on the shore there uh, of the Mediterranean. And Jonah went on his way toward Nineveh, which is what he should have done to to start with. But the point is, is that is that Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. It's not anything that we do. It's all God's doing. And that's why God gets all the glory for, uh, for salvation. Now, it all began back in Genesis chapter 15. If we want to, we want to talk about justification by faith in the Old Testament, the, the father of faith is Abraham himself. In Genesis 15, the uh, time is around 1800 B.C. Uh, Abram, uh, his name originally had been Abram, uh, which means exalted father, and his name would subsequently be changed to Abraham, which means the father of a multitude or the father of many nations. But he and uh, his dad and his nephew and his wife uh, had left Ur of the Chaldees uh, around uh, Babylon in those days, and uh, they had made their way to Haran. We're not sure how long they stayed there. That would be in the northern part of Syria. And 
having uh, and once uh, Abram's dad died, they began to and that let's see, Abram was seventy five years old then, and they made their way down to Canaan. And we pick up the story in Genesis chapter fifteen. Abram now it's ten years later, and Abram is eighty five years old. And uh, it says, Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless? Now remember, God had promised uh, Abram back in Genesis chapter 12, He promised him three things. The Abrahamic covenant, three promises. He promised him a piece of real estate, land. He promised him offspring. And He promised him blessing, that God would bless him. But through, through him, He would be a blessing to the entire world. And we just don't have time to uh, talk about what all that means, but believe me, it is marvelous when you talk about it. What will you give me for I continue child? See, this is ten years later, and still he has no son. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. That is, the the head steward. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, that is Eliezer, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Now remember, uh, at this point, Abram's 85. His wife Sarai is 75. And he, God, brought him, Abram, outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Now what was he saying? He was just saying, Look, your offspring, there's just going to be so many of them that you just can't count them. They're just stars everywhere. And notice, here's the big verse because it's quoted in the New Testament. Verse 6, And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, the Lord, counted it to him as righteousness. See, there's justification right there. And you see imputation. You see where righteousness is imputed to Abram. On the ba- oh, is it on the basis of anything that he's done? Not at all. It's simply on the basis of trusting in the Lord, believing in uh, in God's promise. Now, did Abram have his faltering moments as far as faith was concerned? You bet he did. In fact, uh, uh, Miss Sarah came up with the idea: let's help God out. Because you know they they still don't have any they still don't have any children. Well, it's common in those days to uh, use some sort of surrogate, and so uh, they had a little handmaid that they picked up while they were down in Egypt, where they had no reason to be down there anyway. God didn't tell them to go down there. So when they came back, they brought this little Egyptian uh, handmaid with them, whose name was Hagar, and. Um, and remember what happened. Uh, Abram went into her, and the result was Ishmael was born. And of course, uh, I guess the immediate application that we can draw from things like that is don't try to make God's promises come to pass. God will take care of making His own promises come to pass, and He will do it in His time. Abram and Sarah just got impatient. Well, let's help God out. After all, I mean, this is, a, this is a practical way to do things, and there's nothing wrong with doing it this way. At least that was what they thought in their minds, but obviously that was not true. Now, Paul comments on this very 
incident in Romans chapter 4, which he wrote around, he wrote the letter to the Romans around A.D. 57. And notice what he says, because he's making his case for justification by faith alone, apart from any kind of works at all. He says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? That is, he's, he, we're, we're, Uh, physical descendants of his. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And then notice, uh, I've underlined it in your notes, he quotes from Genesis chapter 15, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now here's his commentary. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Hey, you don't have to say thank you when the boss hands you your paycheck. That's a nice thing to do. But you don't have to. Why? Because you've earned it. Theoretically, you've earned it. Uh, if you haven't been playing Facebook and, and other stuff all uh, all week long. But he says uh, it's not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just uh, now, notice this is this is before the law of Moses was even given. This is four hundred years before Moses came along. But then. Uh, Paul, in making his point, wants to show also that even when the law came along 400 years after Abraham, nothing had changed at all. It's, it's not that now that the law's here, we're gonna, you, you're going to be able to be saved or accounted righteous by keeping the law, because notice the very next thing that he says. It says, um, well, let's, let's go back and read that last verse I was reading because it's the first part of a sentence. And to the one who does not work, that is, is not trying to earn his salvation, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks. Now, see, now here's David. He, he came along, um, what, around a thousand uh, BC, which is about four hundred years after Moses. So you got four hundred years before Moses, four hundred years after Moses. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works, and then he he cites something that David wrote in Psalm thirty two, verses one and two Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. He won't count his sin. Why why won't he count his sin? Because his sin of the person who believes has been imputed to Christ, just as Christ's righteousness has been imputed to that formerly guilty sinner who now has been declared not guilty through out of uh, uh, because of the finished work of Christ. Notice the passage there from Isaiah fifty three eleven. Out of the anguish of his soul. He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, talking about Christ, and this is obviously prophetically speaking, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Notice, not bear everybody's iniquities, but bear the iniquities of God's people. 
he shall make many to be accounted righteous. You see the um, so so the, so we see here in the case of uh, of Abraham that. Uh, that in spite of Abraham's fallen condition, that uh, that God justified him, but He justified him on the basis of uh, of faith. That's uh, that's the way God does it. Uh, there's an interesting passage also in Zechariah chapter three, verses three and four, that uh, somewhat illustrates this. And this uh, this certainly takes place later. This is uh, after the uh, nation of Judah had gone into exile. And uh, had finally, after 70 years of exile in Babylon, had come back to the land. And the purpose was to uh, repatriate the land and to rebuild the temple. They had laid the foundation for the temple. And then folks decided, hey, I'd just rather work on my own house than work on this thing. Uh, this is just, just seemed like a lost cause. And um, God stirred up two prophets at that time to uh, to speak and call the people to repentance and to get back to the job of what they were supposed to do, and that was Haggai and Zechariah. And in Zechariah chapter three, verses three and four, we see another uh, marvelous word picture of what we're talking about here. It says, "Now Joshua, this Joshua is not the one, not the Joshua who fit the battle of Jericho. This is a Joshua, the high priest." of that day uh, when the people repatriated the land of, uh, of Judah. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken away, I have taken your iniquity away from you and I will clothe you with pure vestments notice there's again there's a picture of the righteousness of god being imputed to someone the filthy rags are taken away and uh, you say well they're just taken out to the dumpster no in uh in reality those filthy rags became uh, a part of what christ died for but all of christ's perfection and his perfect uh righteousness that garment of righteousness is imputed to the to the believing sinner it's illustrated also in Matthew chapter 22 which uh, which is uh, takes place around AD 30 uh, this is um, uh, parable from Jesus teaching certainly you see uh, Jesus talking about justification and here in Matthew chapter 22 there's a parable of the wedding feast and uh, <clears throat> notice we were talking about there's a general call and there's an effectual call see if you can pick up pick it up as we read uh, as we read through this uh, Matthew chapter 22 uh, there's a there's a similar uh, Parable. It's not exactly the same, but it's a similar parable in Luke chapter 14, beginning at verse 12. If you want to read that on your own. Matthew 22, beginning at verse 1. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they wouldn't come. Now, why wouldn't they come? Why wouldn't they respond to this general call to come? Because they didn't care about the king. 
They were hostile toward the king. They didn't understand what was going on with all those things we talked about earlier. It says they were invited to the wedding feast, but they wouldn't come. Again, he sent other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, see, I prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered. Everything's ready. Hey, it's party time. Most people in these days spend a lot of their time just trying to subsist. They're looking for meals for that day. That's one of the reasons Jesus was real popular because you know he fed the multitudes. He even said, he said, look, he said, the reason you're following me around is not because you're interested in what I've got to say. It's because of the groceries that you're getting. Everything's ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off. One to his farm, another to his business. While the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. See, that's a reference to the prophets of the Old Testament. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Incidentally, that would happen in A.D. 70. Uh, with the Romans in Jerusalem. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. Now again, see, here's a picture of the general call of the God. Just go out everywhere and say, Y'all come. Come on to the feast as plenty of food to eat, there's plenty of wine to drink, this is a big deal, my son's getting married and I want you. I just want everybody to come. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. See, here's a picture of the gospel. And what happens is we preach the gospel and there are some people uh, whom God regenerates who genuinely come to faith. But then there are a lot of people who just wind up joining a church and they do it for business reasons. Hey, it's it's just good business to be seen at such and such a church. Uh, it's, it's good to be thought of as a, par, as a person who has great high morals. So here's a, just a whole bunch of people who wind up coming and they're supposed to look like you know they're uh, they're the real McCoy that they're really really interested in the, in the in the king and the king's son it said and those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found both bad and good so the wedding hall was filled with guests now here's here's where we were headed Verse 11, But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. No wedding garment. Now remember, back in these days, when you were invited to a wedding, the host would not, was not only going to put a big spread out so it would be a big party, but he would also provide clothing for you. You know, we do something kind of like that when we uh, provide uh, uh, the groomsmen with, uh, with tuxedos today. But in this case, everybody was provided with a wedding garment. But when the king comes in and starts looking around... He noticed, hey, there's one guy over there. You know, what in the world? He's dressed in shorts and flip-flops. Of course, that's not what it says, but that's that's kind of the, the general idea. It says he saw a man there who had no wedding garment. And see, what this is, this is a picture of coming our own way. If you're going to come to the wedding feast, you come in the garment that God provides. 
And what is that garment that He provides? It's a garment of righteousness. And how do we get that garment? There's only one way, and that's through faith in Christ. Well, here's a picture of a guy who's decided he'll just come his own way. Incidentally, the context of this parable is that Jesus is not only teaching the crowds, but there are scribes and Pharisees who are gathered around who are listening also. And this is aimed at them who had decided that they would come their own way. They didn't have to have faith in Christ. They could just uh, try to keep they could keep the law. They could do all these things or they thought they could. And Jesus is 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 communicating here, no, you can't you can't just come any way you please. And notice verse twelve, and he, the king, said to him, Friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? And notice what the guy said. It says he was speechless. Romans 3.19 says that every mouth will be stopped. I get tickled sometimes when people say, well, I tell you, if if I get to heaven, I've got some questions I want to ask God. Let me tell you, if you get to heaven, you're going to be so overwhelmed and so overawed with the magnificence of God. All your questions are going to vanish away and you're just going to do like Job did near the end of the book of Job where you put your hand over your mouth and said, I've been talking about stuff I didn't need to be talking about. I just need to shut up. He was speechless. And then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh Uh-oh, verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. See, that many are called, that's that general call of the Gospel. But only those who are chosen, those who are foreknown and predestined and called effectually. That is, they're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. God breathes into them the breath of life so that when they hear the Gospel message, they understand it. They may not understand all the implications, but they understand that they that we are sinners. We understand that Jesus is the only solution to our sin. And we cry out, yes indeed, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. And He does. We trust in His finished work. Now, notice uh, chapter 18 of Luke. Uh, there's another parable here, and we'll, we'll briefly look at it. It's a parable of the Pharisee and the uh, publican. No, it's not the republican, it's the publican. That was a tax collector. <clears throat> when you contrast the two, the... Uh, You see, the Pharisee was uh, self-righteous. He was aware of his own goodness. Whereas the tax collector was repentant. He was aware of his own need for God's mercy. And so there is a great contrast that's uh, this demonstrated here, and it's the contrast between justification and condemnation. They are the pole opposites of one another. Justification, we are declared, we are uh, righteous, we are acquitted of our sins. In condemnation, a person is damned because of his sins. The wrath of the wrath of God is resting on that person. See, all sins going to be all all sins going to be paid for. Either it's paid for in the person of the Lord Jesus, or we ourselves pay for it. And uh, that's an ominous thought. Luke eighteen. 
Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's the scribes and the Pharisees. And treated others with contempt. They looked down their noses at at the common folk. Two men, here's the parable, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Now remember, the Pharisees knew the Bible, the Old Testament. They, they knew it backwards and forwards. And they, oh, they were, and, and, and they loved to just walk around in the, in the, in the crowds of the city and have people uh, just bow their heads to them and, uh, and, and treat them with deference. They just loved that. They were not only self-righteous, they were egotistical. They were filled with, uh, with pride. Alright, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I'm sure he pointed his finger when he said it. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, is there anything wrong with fasting twice a week? Of course not. Is there anything wrong with giving tithes, giving a tenth of, of, uh, of all that you get? Of course not. There's not anything wrong with those things at all. And Jesus doesn't dispute the fact that the Pharisee does that. The problem is, does fasting twice a week and does paying tithes of all that you get ingratiate you to God? And the answer is no. See, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then here's what Jesus says, I tell you, this man, that is, this tax collector, went down to his house justified. He went down to his house acquitted of his sins. Why? Because he was aware of the fact that he needed the mercy of God. That there was no way on God's green earth that he could earn God's grace. That he could earn God's mercy. That he could earn God's favor. There was just no way. This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Paul, particularly in the book of Romans, but in Romans chapter 3, the context there is the universal guilt of humanity. And then he talks about the giving of the law of Moses and the whole purpose of the law was to reveal uh, our need for a Savior, to reveal sin and to show us that we need a Savior. In other words, when we look at the law, the law says you shall not do so and so. Well, the problem is I, I have a hard time not doing so and so. And remember, the, the, the Jesus just pushed that. He said, look, it, it said that you uh, the, uh, the law says you shall not have adultery. You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. Uh, 
and he just just to push the point home. So the whole purpose of the, the law served as a mirror. We look in the mirror, and it shows us what the problem is. And our problem is one that we are sinners, but we can't do anything about our sin. Uh, it's like looking in the mirror in the morning when you when you awaken and you realize you went to you went to bed with uh, with spinach in your teeth and uh, and you and your makeup is kind of run over to one side and your hair is all askew and all all of those kinds of things are are wrong. Can you rub your head and your face and your teeth against the mirror? And make everything right. No, all the mirror can do is show you what's wrong with you, but it can't fix you. You're going to have to have a toothbrush to get the the, the the grime out of your teeth. You're going to have to have a comb to straighten your hair out. You're going to have to have a, 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 a washcloth to get your face cleaned up before you can apply makeup or whatever it is that you're going to do. In the case of guys, uh, you know, you, you're going to have to get the, the Barbasol and the, uh, and the razor out to get the, to get the stubble off. So the law reveals what's wrong with us, but it can't fix us. The gospel, trusting in Christ, is what ultimately is the only thing that can fix us. Now, in Romans chapter 3, beginning, oh, about verse 21, uh, Paul talks about justification and he says this. Well, let's let's go back to verse 19. He says, now we know... Boy, I hope we know this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Remember from the parable we read? And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Again, the law is a mirror. It shows us what our sin is, but it can't eradicate our sin. It can't do anything about our sin. In fact, it has just the opposite effect. It stirs up sin within us. Because any time, you know, when think about it. Anytime somebody says, now you can't do so and so, what happens inside of you? That's exactly right. You think, well, I'll show you. <clears throat> Verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Now remember, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law is as good as God is because God is the one who gave the law. It's His law. The problem is not the law. The problem is us because we are sinners by nature. We're sinners by choice, but... We're sinners by nature. We're born that way. And if you don't believe kids are born that way, you just wait till that kid gets about two years old. You don't have to. You don't have to teach them to lie. You don't have to teach them to uh, do things they're not supposed to do. It just comes natural. They're little sinners. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned. That is, Jew and Gentile. No exceptions. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified 
by His grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, don't get, don't get scared. Propitiation is one of those $5 theological words, but what it means is satisfaction. It has to do with the wrath of God being satisfied. When God poured out His wrath on His Son for all that sin that the Son was bearing, God's wrath was propitiated. God's wrath was satisfied. God's wrath was turned away from you and from me if we are trusting in Christ. Because God is not going to... uh, It would be unjust for God to punish... Uh, us for sin that Jesus had been punished for. That's the reason there's no condemnation. Let's keep reading. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just. He might be shown to be just. See, a lot of folks up until the time of the cross, all through the Old Testament, up until the time of the cross, people look at that and say, well, golly, Man, looks to me like this this person's doing all this bad stuff, but he seems to be prospering and things are things are going great and all those kinds of questions that people uh, that people have even now. He says it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just or shown to be just because ultimately the price was paid for the sin. Notice, when Jesus died, He died for Abraham and for Moses and for Jacob and for Joseph and for Joshua, for Samson, for all of these Old Testament, for Sarah. He died for all of these Old Testament characters up until that time. You say, well, what was going on? There wasn't any 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 sacrifice that could put away sin. The the old uh, covenant economy, the Mosaic law, it couldn't it couldn't killing those animals couldn't put away sin. It was always a picture of what God was going to do through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so now, when you look at the cross and you see uh, the. The, the son cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the father turned away from him. You say, Now I see God is just because God is punishing sin. But not only is God just in that He punishes sin, He punished it for His people in the person of His only begotten Son. But God not only is just, He is also justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Rather than that judgment being poured out on me because of God's great mercy, because of His great grace, He imputes to me and to you if you're trusting in Christ the very righteousness of Christ. We're like those folks that went to the wedding feast and we've got on the right kind of clothing. We, it, it, it might look kind of bad underneath the clothing and we might, we might have on ratty clothes underneath. But outside where the King sees us, 
He sees us clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And one of these days, at the time of the resurrection, we will not only have a new soul and a new spirit, we will have new bodies that correspond to them. And all semblances of sin will be gone. See, in, in justification, we're freed from the penalty of sin. In sanctification, we are being freed from the power of sin. But in glorification, that's the last link in the chain, we shall be free from the very presence of sin when we are with Him. Praise be to God. Verse 28 of Romans 3 says, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Now, what do we summarize in these last five minutes or so that we have together? What, how can we summarize this whole issue of justification as far as some sort of personal application is concerned? First of all, let's review what justification is. It is that act of God by which He declares the believing sinner not guilty or acquitted on the basis of the substitutionary death of Christ Jesus. It is the exact opposite of condemnation. Notice that justification is a judicial act. It is not a process. It is an act. The banging of the gavel is an act. Romans 8.1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Justification is received by faith apart from any human merit whatsoever. Galatians 2.16 says, Know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law no one will be justified. We cannot earn our way. We have to trust in the only perfect one who's ever lived. Thirdly, justification is based on the obedient life and death of Christ Jesus. Romans 5:19 says for as though I'm sorry, for as through the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the One, that's Christ, the many, those who are trusting in Him, will be made righteous. Fourthly, justification involves God's crediting Christ's righteousness to us and our sins to Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Here's a good verse to memorize. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Only in Him, I might add. Justification also brings the believer into union with Christ. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Justification brings God's justice and mercy 
together. Romans 3.24, this is part of what we were reading earlier. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation or satisfaction in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He might be just, He might be shown to be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. When you look at the cross, you see the justice of God on sin, and you see the mercy of God on the believing sinner. As Christ cries out, it is finished. Father, forgive them. They are clueless. And then finally, justification means that the believer's sins are forgiven. Jesus said in John 5.24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears My Word and believes Him who sent Me has, not will have, but has, present tense, eternal life, and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death, from spiritual death, to life. Does this doctrine, the doctrine of justification by faith, does it bring you comfort? It should. Does it evoke praise to God? If it doesn't, there is something wrong. You're still not getting it. Because Jesus paid it all. All to Him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. Do you have no fear when it comes to thinking about Judgment Day knowing that without a doubt all of your sins are forgiven? That's part of the inheritance of the true believer. Romans 8, 33 and 34 says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It's God who justifies. Who is He that condemns? Who, who, what court is higher? Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Do you, do you see that? Look at Think about the three persons of the Godhead. You've got God the Father, the, the great judge who has said, you are acquitted on the basis of faith in my Son and His finished work on your behalf. You've got the Son who is seated at the right hand of God, who is our advocate, who is constantly interceding for us. And within us, we have the Holy Spirit living who is constantly praying according to the will of God on our behalf, interceding for us. Praise be to God. Don't you love that old hymn by Horatio Spafford? My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. And then that great hymn by Edward Mote, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. Where's your hope built? 
Is it built on the blood and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus? What are you trusting in? Are you trusting in your works? Are you tr- well, yeah, I trust in Jesus, but I also trust that this stuff that I'm doing is going to going to pay off in the long run. You know, again, see, think think about that parable. You know, the the Pharisee. I I, I pay my tithes of everything I get. I fast twice a week. Jesus didn't say there was anything wrong with doing that. But Jesus is real clear that doing those kinds of things won't get you through the pearly gates. We cannot ingratiate ourselves with God through the things that we do. We cannot earn His favor. All we can do is trust in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you doing that? I pray to God that you are. Let's pray. You've been listening to Focus on Truth, the Bible teaching ministry of Chuck Bradshaw. Focus on Truth is a non-denominational evangelical Christian ministry to the marketplace. Your gifts to Focus on Truth are tax deductible. For a free copy of our monthly newsletter, Glimpses of Truth, or other information about the ministry, write to Focus on Truth, Box 5367, Columbus, Georgia, 31906.